Chapter Twenty Seven of the Mystery of the Four Fingers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Four Fingers by Fred M. White. Chapter Twenty Seven Nemesis. For a long space of time, Fenwick stood there, his head buried in his hands. All the way through, he had never been able to disguise from himself the feeling that, sooner or later, this dread thing must happen. Years ago he had taken his life in his hands in exploring the recesses of the four-finger mine. He had more or less known what he had to expect, for the mine had been a sacred thing, almost a part of the religion of the diminishing tribe which had imparted the secret to Le Fenu, and any intruder was bound to suffer. So far as Fenwick knew, the last survivor of this tribe was Felix Zary. Leaving out of account altogether the latter's religious fanaticism, he had been deeply and sincerely attached to the family of Le Fenu, and now he was playing the part of the avenging genius. All these things came back to Fenwick as he sat there. He knew full well the character of the man he had to deal with. He knew how clever and resourceful Felix Zary was. Hitherto he had scorned the suggestion that there was some mysterious magic behind Zary's movements, but now he did not know what to think. All he knew was that he was doomed and that all the police in the metropolis could not shield him from the reach of Zary's long arm. And here, indeed, was proof positive of the fact. Two hours before, nobody, not even Fenwick himself, knew that he would spend the night at the little house in Poplar, and here was Zary already upon his track, almost before he had started on the long journey which was intended to lead to the path of safety. Fenwick never troubled to think what had become of the meal prepared for him or how the extraordinary change had been brought about. Gradually, as he sat there, something like strength and courage came back to him. Come what might, he would not yield. He would not surrender himself into the hands of the foe without a struggle. He replaced the cover on the dish, and rang the bell for his landlady. She came in a moment later, comfortable and smiling, the very picture of respectable middle age. As Fenwick glanced at her, he at once acquitted her of any connection with his final warning. "'I am sorry to trouble you,' he said, "'but I should like to know if you have any other lodgers. You see, I am rather a bad sleeper, suffering a great deal from nightmare, and I should not like to alarm your other lodgers in the middle of the night.' "'Lord bless you, sir,' the woman said. "'We haven't any lodgers at all. We don't need to take them, seeing that my man is comfortably fixed. Of course, we are pleased to do anything we can for you, but we shouldn't have had you here at all if it hadn't been to please Mr. Venner.' we'd do anything for him. No doubt, Fenwick said hastily. I suppose your husband sees a good many of his old friends occasionally. No, he doesn't, the woman replied. I don't suppose we have had anybody in the house, except yourself, for the last two months. I hope you have enjoyed your supper, sir. Oh, uh, yes, Fenwick stammered. I finished all the meat. There is one more thing I should like to ask you. I shall have to go out presently, late as it is, do you happen to have such a thing as a latch-key? If you haven't, the key of the front door will do. The latch-key was forthcoming, and presently Fenwick heard his landlord and his wife going upstairs to bed. He did not feel comfortable until he had crept all over the house and seen that everything was made secure. Then he sat down to think the matter out. Twice he helped himself liberally to brandy. A third time his hand went mechanically to the bottle. Then he drew back. I mustn't have any more of that, he said. It would be simply playing into the hands of the fiend who is pursuing me. With a resolution that cost him an effort, 
Fenwick locked the brandy away in a cupboard and threw the key out of the window. In his present state of mind, he dared not trust himself too far. Partially divesting himself of his clothing, he drew from about his waist a soft leather belt containing pockets, and from these pockets he produced a large amount of gold coins and a packet of banknotes. Altogether there were some hundreds of pounds, and Fenwick congratulated himself on the foresight which had led him to adopt this plan in case necessity demanded it. He had enough, and more than enough, to take him to the other side of the world, if only he could manage to get rid of Felix Zary. His mind was made up at length. He would creep out of the house in the dead of night, and make his way down to the docks. At every hour ships of various size and tonnage put out of the port of London, and no doubt the skipper of one of these, for a consideration, would take him wherever he wanted to go, and Fenwick knew, moreover, that there were scores of public-houses along the side of the river, which are practically never closed, and which are run entirely for the benefit of seafaring men. It would be easy to make inquiries at some of these, and discover what vessels were leaving by the next tide, and a bargain could be struck immediately. So far as Fenwick was concerned, he inclined towards a sailing-ship bound for the Argentine. His spirits rose slightly at the prospect before him. His step was fairly light and buoyant as he proceeded in the direction of his bedroom. There was no light in the room, so that he had to fumble about in his pockets for a box of matches, which fell from his fingers and dropped onto the floor. "'Confound it!' Fenwick muttered. "'Where are they?' "'Don't trouble,' a calm, quiet voice said out of the darkness. "'I have matches, with which I will proceed to light the gas.' Fenwick could have cried aloud, had he been physically able to do so. There was no reason for a light to be struck, or the gas to be lighted so that he might see the face of the speaker. Indeed, he recognized the voice far too well for that. A moment later he was gazing at the impassive face of Felix Zary. "'You did not expect to see me,' the latter said. "'You were under the impression that you were going to get away from me. Never did man make a greater mistake. It matters little what you do. It will matter nothing to you or anybody else in twelve hours from now.' Do you realize the fact that you have but that time to live? Do you understand that? You would murder me? Fenwick said hoarsely. You may calm yourself on that score. You are unarmed, and I have not so much as a pocket-knife in my possession. I shall not lay a hand upon you. I shall not peril my soul for the sake of a creature like you. There are other ways, and other methods, of which you know nothing. How did you get here? Fenwick asked hoarsely, "'How did you put that dreadful thing on my table?' Zary smiled in a strange, bland fashion. He could have told Fenwick prosaically what a man with a grasp like his could do, in connection with a water-pipe. He could have told also how he had dogged and watched his victim within the last few hours, with the pertinacity of a bloodhound. But Zary could see how Fenwick was shaken and dazed by some terrible thing which he could not understand." It was no cue of Zary's to enlighten the miserable man opposite. "'There are things utterly beyond your comprehension,' he said calmly. "'If you look back to the past, you will remember how we laid our mark upon the man who stole the forefinger mine. That man, I need not say, was yourself. To gain your ends you did not scruple to take the life of your greatest friend, the greatest benefactor you ever had. You thought the thing out carefully?' You devised a cunning scheme whereby you might become rich and powerful, at the expense of Georges Le Fanu, and scarcely was the earth dry upon his coffin before your warnings came. 
You knew the legend of the forefinger mine, and you elected to defy it. A week went by, a week during which you took the gold from the mine, and all seemed well with you. Then you woke one morning to find that in the night you had lost your forefinger, without the slightest pain, and with very little loss of blood. That was the first sign of the vengeance of the genius of the mine. Shaken and frightened as you were, you hardened your heart, like Pharaoh of old, and determined to continue. Another week passed, and yet another finger vanished in the same mysterious fashion. Still you decided to stand the test, and your third warning came. With the fourth warning your nerves utterly gave way, and you fled from the mine with less ill-gotten gain than you had expected. It matters nothing to me what followed afterwards, but you will admit that at the present moment you have not benefited much by your crime. I have nothing more to say to you. I only came here to-night just to prove to you how impossible it is for you to hide from the vengeance of the mine. In your last bitter moments I want you to think of my words and realize. As Zary spoke, he moved across the room in the direction of the gas bracket. He laid his hand upon the tap, and a moment later the room was in darkness. There was a sound like the sliding of a window, followed by a sudden rush of cold air, and by the time that Fenwick had found his matches and lighted the gas again, there was not so much as a trace of Zary to be seen. "'I wish I hadn't thrown away the key of that cupboard,' Fenwick said hoarsely. "'I would give half I possess for one drop of brandy now. Still, I won't give in. I won't be beaten by that fellow.' At any rate, he can't possibly know what I intend to do. He could not know that I shall be on board a vessel before morning. Half an hour later, Fenwick left the house, and made his way straight to the docks. At a public house in the vicinity, he obtained the brandy that he needed so badly, and felt a little stiffened and braced up by the spirit. He found presently the thing he wanted, in the shape of a large bark bound for the river plate. The skipper, a burly-looking man with an enormous black beard, was uproariously drunk, but not quite so intoxicated that he could not see the business side of a bargain. "'Oh, you want to go out with me, mister?' he said. "'Well, that's easily enough managed. We've got no passengers on board, and you'll have to rough it with the rest of us. I don't mind taking you on for fifty pounds.' "'That's a lot of money,' Fenwick protested. The black-bearded skipper winked solemnly at the speaker. "'There's always a risk in dealing with stolen goods,' he said. "'Besides, fifty pounds isn't much for a man who wants to get out of the country as badly as I see you do. And once I have passed my word to do it, I'll see you safe through, and so will my crew. Or I'll know the reason why. Now, my yellow pal, fork out that money, and in half an hour you'll be as safe as if you're on the other side of the heron pond, and not a policeman in London will know where to find you. Now, is it a bargain or not?' Fenwick made no further demur. He accepted the conditions there and then. There was nothing to be gained by affecting to pose as an honest man, and he was a little frightened to find how easily this drunken ruffian had spotted him for a fugitive from justice. "'I can't give you the money just now,' he whispered. "'I've got it concealed about me, and to produce a lot of cash in a mixed company like this would be too dangerous.' The skipper nodded, and proposed further refreshment. Fenwick agreed eagerly enough. He was feeling desperate now, and he did not seem to care much what happened to him. He could afford to place himself entirely in the hands of the black-bearded skipper, who would look after him closely for his own sake. After all said and done, he had no cause to doubt the honesty of the seaman, who appeared to be fairly popular with his companions, and well known in the neighborhood. 
It was the best part of an hour before the commander of the bark staggered to his feet and announced in an incoherent voice that it was time to get aboard. Presently they were straggling down to the dock, Fenwick propping up his companion and wondering if the latter was sober enough to find his way to his ship. It was very dark, a thin rain had begun to fall, and the waters of the river were ruffled by an easterly breeze. The skipper stumbled down a flight of steps and into a roomy boat, which was prevented from capsizing by something like a miracle. Presently they came alongside the black hull of a vessel, and Fenwick found himself climbing up a greasy ladder onto a dirty deck, where two seamen were passing the time playing a game of cards. Down below, the skipper indicated a stuffy little bunk leading out of his own cabin, which he informed Fenwick would be placed at his disposal for the voyage. "'If you don't mind, I'll turn in now,' the latter said. "'I'm dead tired and worn out. My nerves are all jumping like red-hot wires. Do you think I shall be safe here?' "'Safe as houses,' the skipper said. "'And besides, we'll be dropping down the river in about an hour.' Just as he was, Fenwick rolled into the bunk, and in a moment was fast asleep. When he came to himself again, the vessel was pitching and rolling. He could hear the rattling creak of blocks and rigging. There was a sweeter and fresher atmosphere in the little cabin. A sense of elation possessed the fugitive. It seemed to him that he was absolutely safe at last. The skipper had evidently gone on deck after having finished his breakfast, for the plates lay about the table, and some tepid coffee in a tin had apparently been left for the use of the passenger. "'I don't think much of this,' Fenwick muttered. "'Still, I dare say I can better it if I pay for it. "'I'll go on deck presently and see what the black-bearded pirate has to say. "'At any rate, I am absolutely safe now, "'and can afford to laugh at the threats of Felix Zary, if that man thinks.' Fenwick paused, and the knife and fork he was holding over the cold bacon fell from his hands. It was too cruel, the irony of fate too bitter, for there— just in front of him, propped up by the sugar-basin, was the cabinet photograph of the very man who was uppermost in his thoughts. It was Felix Zary to the life, the same calm, philosophic features, the same great round eyes like those of a Persian cat. It all came back to Fenwick now, the whole horror of the situation. His head whirled, and spots seemed to dance before his eyes. A string snapped somewhere in his brain. Zary was behind him, he thought, close behind him, like an avenging fury. With a horrid scream, Fenwick tumbled up the stairs onto the slippery deck. All around him was a wild waste of white waters. The ship heeled over as Fenwick darted to the side. End of chapter 27